Welcome back, everybody, to The Luke Beasley Show. I hope you're doing wonderful on this Wednesday. We have a fantastic show ahead of us, so let's dive in. Republican Congressman-elect George Santos appeared on Fox News, and this is one of the most disastrous interviews I've seen in a very long time. We're going to dive into uh, the clips I want to show you, and you have to stick around because, holy smokes, this is brutal for George Santos. But for anyone who hasn't been keeping up with the story, let me kind of give the quick background. George Santos ran for Congress and won in New York. And then it came out that he pretty much lied about all the major aspects of his resume, claiming he went to a college that he didn't, claiming he was in certain works for certain companies that he didn't, claiming that he was Jewish when he's not, and on and on we go. And then he admitted through a New York Post interview that indeed many of these things were lies. And now he's appearing on television to get smacked around by uh, Tulsi Gabbard. Now, y'all know how I feel about Tulsi Gabbard, and right now she's filling in for Tucker Carlson on Fox News, and you definitely know how I feel about Tucker Carlson. No love for either of those individuals. But in this situation, Tulsi Gabbard did do a really good interview and um, effectively pressed George Santos as she should have on his lies. So again, he has been elected. He's saying he's going to still take over as a congressman in January, despite getting elected on a resume that wasn't true. And this is what he has to say in response to all of his lies that he now has admitted to. A few of them he hasn't admitted to, but for the most part, all of them he has. Take a look at this first clip. Holy smokes. Easy, as I've said it many, many times, I come from abject poverty. I made some mistakes and I own up to them. The, and now I want to the, put this thing past is, me so I can deliver for the American people. I'm sure you do want to put it past you. <laughs> the thing is, Congressman-elect, uh, integrity means, yes, carrying yourself with honor, but it means, it means telling the truth, being a person of integrity. Of and if I were one of those in New York's third district right now, now that the election is over and I'm finding out all of these lies that you've told, not just one little lie or one little embellishment. These are blatant lies. My question is, do you have no shame? Do you have no shame in the people well, who are now you're asking to trust you to go and be their voice for them, their families and their kids in Washington? Tulsi, I can say the same thing about the Democrats and, and the party. Look at Joe Biden. Joe Biden's been lying to the American people for 40 years. He's the president of the United States. Democrats resoundly support him. Do they have no shame? This, Look, this I've is, made this very this clear. Is not, this I is made, not about the Democratic Party, though. This is Sir, you have been caught lying about almost every aspect of who you are for a campaign for Congress. You said you went to a college that you didn't, a career that you didn't, Jewish when you're not, said that you had 13 properties under your ownership when really you live with your sister and don't own any properties. Answer for that. Well, um, Joe Biden something something or another? Nice. This is about your relationship, no, frankly, with the people who've entrusted you to go and, and fight for them. And I think one of the questions that, that really probably hits home to a lot of people is, is are you Jewish? We've, we've got a letter that your campaign sent out earlier this year, which reads as follows. As a proud American Jew, I've been to Israel numerous times for educational, business, and leisurely trips. You said there in that letter that you are, quote, a proud American Jew. How do you how do you explain that? My heritage is Jewish. I've always identified as Jewish. I was raised a practicing Catholic. I think I've gone through this. Even I've not not 
being raised a practicing Jew, I've always joked with friends and circles, even with in the campaign, I'd say, guys, I'm Jewish. Remember, I was raised Catholic. So look, I understand. Oh, nothing is more cringy and brutal and vile than when you caught lying about being an American Jewish saying, no, 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 no. I didn't say I was Jewish. I said I was Jew-ish. That is so aggravating, but also just deeply humiliating as a cover story. Stan, everybody wants to nitpick at me. I, I'm gonna reassure this once and for all. I'm not a facade, I'm not a persona. I, I have an extensive career that I worked really hard to achieve. And I'm gonna deliver from my experience because I remain committed in delivering results for the American people. I campaigned on inflation, I campaigned on crime, I campaigned on education. Okay, we'll stop that clip there, but we have another. Um, what is that? I'm not a facade, I'm not a fraud. I worked really hard for a career and that's the background that I'm gonna take to Washington, D.C. How are we supposed to know that? You didn't tell anyone that in the campaign. What's the actual career? Because I, as someone who live in your, no, I don't actually, but if I were someone who lived in your district, would be like, oh, I guess this is why they voted him in. He worked for Goldman Sachs and Citigroup and uh, has all these interesting parts of his past that are definitely true. And that's why he's probably well informed to go in there and make good decisions on inflation and gas prices and crime. And then you learn that none of that is true. You can't then come out and say, no, no, I know I've been lying about my career, but I actually have a separate, really impressive career that just trusts me, gives me all the proper experience to be a congressman. That's what you should have ran on originally if you actually had that background, which it seems like you probably don't. And that's what you felt like you had to make up a whole story. Second moment as the interview comes to a close. Everybody just wants to push me and call me a liar. Look, well, I embellished my Alex resume. Santos. I did. Congressman Alex Santos, we, we've given you a lot of time. I think the time that is owed is to the people of New York's third. Uh, it's hard to imagine how they could possibly trust your explanations when you're not really even willing to admit the depth of your deception to them. Thank you so Ooh. much for being here and joining us. Thank you, Tulsi. Now, this time of year. Now, as I said at the beginning, no love for Tulsi Gabbard. I think a lot of her political moves, political uh, rhetoric changes have been to do what she's now doing, which is to get a position at Fox News or in the right wing that brings her lots of fame and notoriety and money. But in this situation, really good interview. And as you saw there, she did a final smackdown on uh, George Santos for his lies. But you also saw the story now he wants to go with, which is he's kind of the victim. Everyone wants to nitpick who I am and beat me around and it's so unfair. What are you talking about? He reminds me so much, and we have more later in today's show to get into that reveals us even further, of the type of person, type of friend that you might have, who different from most somewhat empathetic human beings, this type of friend just has no ability to ever recognize when they're wrong. And so somehow, even when the conversation starts with them trying to apologize, it somehow ends with them being the victim and you did something wrong by making them feel bad for something they did. <laughs> you, you know what I'm saying? That's what he's doing in this situation. It's like, yes, I've apologized for my tiny little embellishments, like claiming I was Jewish when I wasn't. Just a little tiny embellishment. And now that I've apologized, it's so offensive that you would be mad at me for that or questioning who I am. I am who I say I am now, despite 
saying a bunch of false things in the past. He cannot recognize that he's just fully in the wrong and needs to do everything possible from his perspective just to show his constituents or to be constituents that he will be better. But of course, he won't be better because this is who he is from what I'm aware about him and from this story. Marjorie Taylor Greene weighed in on George Santos's appearance on Fox News on Tucker Carlson tonight, but where Tulsi Gabbard was filling in for Tucker Carlson. And as I said, Tulsi Gabbard's not somebody I particularly admire. She has done some things I've seen as very dishonest uh, over the last few months, but this interview she did really, really well. And she pressed him in a great um, and effective fashion, and it went horribly for George Santos. Now, we went over that already, so if you're watching this on YouTube in a separate segment, the Marjorie Greene segment, I would go watch the George Santos uh, segment before we dive into this. But she responded to this appearance on Fox News by George Santos and was actually upset with Tulsi Gabbard, if you can believe it, and came in to defend George Santos, the liar, the person who made up almost every significant aspect of his past to run for Congress and had to admit to that fact. She thinks he's the one who's the victim in this situation, as does he, and he should be advocated for. Take a look at this Twitter thread from Marjorie Taylor Greene, where she uh, is linking to this interview that uh, Tulsi Gabbard did with George Santos and said, Tulsi Gabbard, who says she is a former Democrat, gave representative-elect George Santos zero grace, while George is admitting and apologizing for lying about his resume, just like her former colleagues are giving George zero grace and even demanding he resign. Next part of this tweet thread, Tulsi says that George's actions on the House floor are what is most important, but George has not even had the chance to take action for his district on the House floor because he isn't even sworn in yet. Tulsi also says, how can his district believe anything he says when he is standing on the House floor fighting for them? I too believe actions and words are extremely important, but I don't think a former Democrat whose actions on the House floor as recent as 2020 that gave her an A from Planned Parenthood, an F from the NRA and introduced a climate agenda signature piece of legislation called the OFF Act designed to end all fossil fuels the same as AOC's Green New Deal should lecture a newly elected Republican member of Congress on how he should vote to represent his Republican district. We'll read two more parts of this, but so far just completely incoherent. So because Tulsi Gabbard had views that you don't like in the past, and now has completely leaned into a grift of pretending to be right wing for the purposes of getting on Fox News and all of that, that makes the questions that she was asking about George Santos's lies somehow wrong. No, the questions by themselves take out who was asking them were perfect, pressing him on his dishonesty and not allowing him to wiggle out of it with one kind of vague answer. Absolutely. Uh, great. But to her, it was too aggressive. And because she used to be a Democrat, she should have no right to ask those questions. Last two parts of this. I do appreciate that Tulsi says words that sound conservative now, even though she can't take action to back them up. I am glad she, like George, realized she made mistakes and was wrong every time she voted to support killing the unborn, taking away our gun rights and legislated to kill America's energy independence in the fossil fuel industry. I hope Tulsi is sincere, just like I hope George is sincere. I think we Republicans should give George Santos a chance and see how he legislates and votes, not treat him the same as the left is. So if you want to, just always take the opposite stance as the left, 
then in this situation, you should choose to advocate on behalf of the guy who blatantly lied about almost every aspect of his past. And that's what she's doing because it is her job to just be anti-left on everything. And that's what she's doing there. And it's funny because what I always say with Trump whenever he'll come out whenever a recent story is damning against him or evidence from the January 6th select committee or the New York investigation into him or wherever it might be, I say, watch how he responds to it. If he just goes after the person or the entity that is bringing this evidence forward and not the evidence itself, then you know he doesn't have an argument uh, an argument against that evidence. And so that's what we're seeing here from Marjorie Taylor Greene. Instead of arguing that what George Santos did wasn't so bad or saying the New York Times messed up on the reporting because of this fact and this fact or what or saying it's perfectly fine to lie about your past when running for Congress that she doesn't feel comfortable arguing so instead it has to be the person who made clear in this interview that George Santos was so incapable of being properly apologetic and honestly having integrity in this moment and just deciding to resign that's the person in the wrong. It's Tulsi Gabbard in the wrong in this situation, not George Santos, who again has apologized, but it's wrapped up in I'm still the victim in this situation. Stop asking me so much questions. And what I did wasn't that bad. And I just embellish. I'm not a liar. I'm not a fraud when he absolutely is those things. And so Marjorie Green, as always, missed the mark on this defense of George Santos. Last story I want to do today about George Santos. He did an interview with WABC Radio, and in it, he perfectly exemplifies what we've been talking about previously in today's show, which is even though he is just 100% in the wrong in this situation, he is perceiving himself to be sort of the victim. And as you'll see in this interview, he wants to make the case that the New York Times is doing something wrong by thoroughly diving into his background and exposing the lies that he's been telling. And so instead of just fully recognizing, yes, I lied, I thought it would help me, or I'm a pathological liar, or whatever it might be, he's saying, okay, I sort of made a mistake, but also all these people who are calling out the fact that I'm a huge liar are the real enemies and the real um, evil people in all of this. So take a look at this interview. Truly strange, his victimhood complex. The New York Times came out with what they call their big expose of the truth of who is George Santos. But to go out there and say, I'm some fictional character that fictional character that just showed up and ran. And now I'm a Russian asset. This is not journalism. This is attacking a human being. If they put all 400 so wait, 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 wait. It's attacking a human being to accurately report on lies they've told? Is that the real point, the real stance you want to stick with? All right. 35 members of the House through the same scrutiny they're putting me under. I'd really like to see the New York Times uh, should, should increase in page count. It'd be a much thicker newspaper. What do you think about the New York Times piece on you? Will you sue them for defamation? I'm going to look through and see everything. And just like they nitpicked at me, now it's going to be my time to nitpick at both journalists who made it their mission to slander me across this country and across the world. The New York Times. So right there, the interviewer asks him, will you be suing the New York Times for defamation? And he answers, I'll kind of be looking at it to decide, I guess, presumably make a decision on that question. What would you possibly, George Santos, be suing the New York Times for defamation about? 
They accurately reported on lies you told. You had to come out and admit to those lies and they're in the wrong because they hurt your feelings, because they broke down a really good scheme of lies you had going, because they uncovered the truth and that hurt you politically. Is that really what you're going to bring to court? It is very strange. And to not at this point in time, just drop all of the games, all of the dishonesty and focus on how do I be the most honest, truthful, high character individual I could possibly be right now in concluding this whole scandal. And the way it should conclude is he resigns. You should not allow yourself to take control of power that you gained by lying to constituents to get their votes to put you in that position of power. That is so backwards and so dishonest. And so if he actually cared about integrity as he pretends to now saying, I'm so sorry, I made a mistake and I'm going to be better, then that would be his course of action. But all of this in the first place, all the lies were created in the first place because he doesn't care about honesty. He doesn't care about integrity. He cares about getting the fame and the power that comes with being a congressman. And that was his real focus, not being a good public servant and trying to make the lives of his constituents better through an honest campaign and an honest uh, and honest governance, which is absolutely so enraging to watch. Joaquin Castro, Democratic representative from Texas, appeared on MSNBC and had some stark words for Governor Greg Abbott and the other Republican governors who have been um, sending migrants without proper planning to different places, Martha's Vineyard, and then more recently Kamala Harris's residence. And I love the way that Representative Castro responded to the most recent example of this. Of course, Christmas Eve and freezing cold temperatures, Governor Greg Abbott and the Texas state government bust uh, over a hundred migrants to be dropped off outside of Vice President Kamala Harris's house, again, in the freezing cold weather. This is not a proposal of solutions, as we talked about. This is not an actual request for a meaningful conversation around how we solve logistical problems at our southern border. This is just using human lives for a political stunt that you think will play well on Fox News or Abbott thinks will play well on Fox News. And here's this response to that action from Democratic Representative Castro. Yeah, I mean, look, we absolutely could. Uh, you've got a Democratic president, a Democratic Senate, uh, and a Republican House. So I've seen in the past that where you have divided government like that, it actually provides an opportunity for compromise and for people to come together and sit at the table and, and work something out. Uh, but, you know, it's going to take a, a lot better faith among Republicans to actually do something about immigration rather than just using the chaos and everything uh, or creating chaos and using that as their number one political boogeyman, which is what they do now. It's their number one boogeyman. Yeah, I wonder what your message is to the Abbots, to the Ducies, to the DeSantises of the world. Well, I would ask them to stop being pricks, first of all, because uh, that's what they're doing, and stop being heartless, uh, but also to actually help us uh, solve this issue, uh, solve this challenge, rather than just trying to become the next Republican president in a few years. I mean, couldn't have said it better myself. And maybe that's not the most professional language to use, but it is the sentiment, I think, among a lot of people who actually care about 
not just the logistical challenges that matters that affects people's lives but also the human beings themselves and how we can get a situation set up where the united states has the most sufficient process and it doesn't put a burden a burden on our system in uh too significant of a way while also centering the humanity of people seeking a better life in the united states in the entire process and when we went over the original story of greg abbott um, or at least the Texas state government at his direction doing this, we talked about how if you're watching, if you're keeping up with this current uh, moment, especially a lot of coverage around El Paso and the massive challenges they're having there with properly tending to and taking care of each individual who has come across the southern border and landed in El Paso, it's an actual problem. This is not to say any concern with our southern border and the challenge, the... Um, the strain that's being put on certain individuals, entities that are responding to uh, migrants landing in uh, Texas or other border states. It's not to say it's not an actual issue that needs to be discussed and uh, focused on. It is. But the way that you solve the problem is not by exploiting human lives to uh, get a couple clips to be played on Fox News or to go, haha, we dropped him off at Kamala Harris's house. No proper investment, actually reforming our immigration system in a significant way so that we can handle and logistically respond to surges like we're seeing right now with the rolling back of Title 42 and, uh, and focus on that while also seeking the best outcome and life for those who are immigrating to the United States. But that is not the conversation that many in the right wing uh, want to have, as is shown by the past two big immigration reform pieces of legislation that were put forward bipartisan, um, in a bipartisan way, these immigration efforts or immigration reform efforts were put forward and it was Republicans who prevented them from getting passed. And so sometimes I'll have people ask me, you say in a kind of a simple way that we could fix the problem that we see with our southern border at times and make it more efficient and um, do that in a way that centers the humanity of people immigrating here. Don't you think that's a little naive because for all of these years it's been a problem and it's never gotten solved? Just some simple solution you have clearly can't make that um, come to a great solution, right? And what you have to remember is if there were a bunch of good faith actors in the room, that response to me would make a whole lot of sense. If those who are trying to address the issue with our southern border, especially like we're seeing right now, actually wanted a solution, and for years that was being attempted and we still were having challenges like we're seeing in El Paso now, then I would say, you're probably right, I'm being naive. But what we understand is politically beneficial to many Republicans to allow the problem to continue so that they can primarily fearmonger about immigration instead of setting up a system where legal immigration is more efficient and people don't feel like they have to go uh, through or come into our country illegally. Instead, understand that our legal immigration system works and will have their best interest in mind. That's not what many Republicans want to get done so it doesn't get done and they can continue to point at um, clips they get and logistical problems that are going on and all of that as a, a political uh, conversation, a political tool that they can continue to use 
for years and years, and it's so sickening to watch. More and more information is coming out of the January 6th Select Committee's final report that reveals so many incredible details about the build-up to January 6th, on January 6th, and all of Trump's attempts to overturn the 2020 election. And today I want to look at the fact that Mark Meadows, according to Cassidy Hutchinson's um, witnessing of these events, was throwing documents in the fireplace, would burn documents after meetings, and presumably did not want the contents of those documents to be seen by people uh, later on. That, of course, is not something that our government officials are supposed to be doing if these are indeed uh, White House documents. So take a look at this being reported on CNN. Hundreds and hundreds of pages, Wolf. And we now actually have all of the transcripts from Cassidy Hutchinson's four appearances behind closed door with the committee. And from those transcripts, we're learning more details, particularly how she told the committee that she actually saw Chief of Staff Mark Meadows burning documents in his office fireplace around a dozen times, which she says amounted to about once or twice a week between December 2020 and January 2021. And she says at least twice she saw Meadows burn burning documents after he had meetings with Republican Congressman Scott Perry, who in fact was subpoenaed by the committee but never actually complied. So in addition to those details, Hutchinson also telling the committee how she says discussions about QAnon conspiracies really permeated the White House after the 2020 election. She said in particular, Mark Meadows brought up the conspiracy theories. Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene, when she was visiting the White House, made mention of that far right-wing political movement with, of course, out outlandish conspiracy theories. And then Cassidy Hutchinson said that she had this exchange with White House trade advisor Peter Navarro. She said, and at one point I had sarcastically said, oh, is this from your QAnon friends, Peter? Because Peter would talk to me frequently about his QAnon friends. And he said, have you looked into it yet, Cass? I think they point out a lot of good ideas. You really need to read this. Make sure the chief read this. Reads this. Oh my goodness. So those around the president of the United States chief of staff and the president of the United States um, himself were caught up in believing, getting their information from QAnon. Now, whenever we talk about some of these stories, I almost feel like the crazy one talking about it because it sounds like something that would be made up in almost a comedic way to go after a political opponent, right? Trump was throwing documents in the toilet and flushing the toilet. <laughs> that didn't really happen, but we're saying it because Trump's such a goofball. No, no, no. It actually happened. Photos come out. Actual documents that were being thrown in the toilet by Trump that he didn't want uh, people seeing. And we know that he rips up documents a lot. And then his chief of staff, similar routine, throwing documents after meetings in the fireplace. Now, if you were to be getting your ideas about how to overthrow our democratic process from QAnon, you probably would want to dispose of, burn, flush those documents, right? The ones that are helping you come to a conclusion about how to make this plan uh, a reality. And that is so frightening. I think because we've been covering this for the last two years now, it can get normal somehow where I come across these stories and I'm preparing for the show and I'm not shaking in complete shock about what I'm reading or what I'm um, preparing for the show because we've heard it. Yeah, of course, 
QAnon was informing some of the most powerful people in our country and um, people around the president and his chief of staff were thinking there's some good things in here. But if we were to pull ourselves out of all the context and pull ourselves out of all the experiences we've had in the past with this, understanding that this is the reality and just look at it from a, you know, an objective point of view completely, it would stun every single one of us. So try to bring that level of, I guess, innocence to observing these stories because it truly is absolutely bonkers. And uh, we can't forget that. Here's one moment where a CNN correspondent is responding to this aspect of the report. It's now CNN's chief political analyst, Gloria Borger, and defense attorney, Shan Wu. Uh, Gloria, first of all, how incredible is it to learn that Cassidy Hutchinson actually saw Mark Meadows, who was then the White House chief of staff, go, go about burning documents? Well, it is remarkable, it is absurd, and it is uh, clearly uh, in violation of the Presidential Records Act, assuming that every piece of paper in the White House should be archived. I mean, we don't know, let me just say, we don't know what these things were that he was throwing in the fireplace, and we had known that he had on occasion thrown something in the fireplace, but unless this was a newspaper clipping um, or something to that effect, um, uh, I think he's got a lot of questions he needs to answer. Exactly right. I mean, the Presidential Records Act seems to be something that the Trump administration just laughed at. So I don't see this being something anyone's held accountable for, unfortunately. But what is so interesting about all of this is this is what we're able to gather from the remaining evidence that wasn't destroyed, right? So much of the story has now been told by the January 6th Select Committee and other uh, entities reporting and all of that. And it is so wild out of some sort of, you know, fictional movie a fictional political movie or book, that's where you would hear these type of stories. And that's what we know. Whenever you start hearing that Trump was flushing documents down the toilet on a regular basis, ripping them up, chief of staff Mark Meadows throwing them in the fireplace, and conversations that weren't on documents, just private conversations that were never uh, reported on or witnessed by someone who testified, that must be even more wild. What do we not know and how crazy must that B. What I have for you next is truly sickening from Tucker Carlson's day show where he brought on the owner of Libs of TikTok, the social media account that uh, sends out clips of teachers or sends out stories about teachers and LGBTQ community members and calls them all groomers and everyone's a groomer and the left's a bunch of groomers and that's what this account does on a regular basis and so this has made the individual who runs the account a hero in the right wing. And so Tucker Carlson interviewed her and we'll show you the clip in a second. But what she says is so absolutely disturbing, honestly, because it's kind of saying the quiet part out loud about what many of these people who purport to care about child sexual assault or grooming actually feel about the LGBTQ community. Because as we talked about, those issues, grooming, child sexual assault, are real issues that should be addressed and we can have a unified conversation about how to do so. But if you're going to just use that as a dishonest and baseless attack against the side that you don't like, then you're showing me you don't actually care about those issues and addressing those problems. You just want to attack the other side as dishonestly as possible. And so she shows the deep hate that she has in her heart for LGBTQ people. And that's why that's the real reason that she's doing all of this. Take a look. What is going on here? Do you have any theories? 
I think there's um, there's something so unique about the LGBTQ community has become this cult and it's so captivating and it pulls people in so strongly unlike anything we've ever seen um, and they they brainwash um, people to join and they convince them of all of these things um, and it's really really hard to get out of it it's really difficult and and there are studies on this like there have been there's been a lot of reporting on this about people uh, parents who are like you know my child is is starting to say you know that they're non-binary or transgender or whatever and how, what do I do how do I how do I stop this and it's really really difficult it it's it's unlike anything we've ever seen I think um, it's extremely poisonous but do you see a spiritual component to any of this? Um, <laughs> you don't have to answer that if you don't want. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. Well, I do. I do. I, think, I don't think this makes sense at all. No, it, it makes it doesn't make any sense. Um, and I think I think they're just I think they're evil. Um, and and sometimes we try to we try to to. Um, to break it down a lot and you know we we discuss like why this is happening what's happening and whatever and I think sometimes the simplest answer is like they're just evil they're bad people they're just evil people and they want to and they want to groom kids I mean there it is she's saying what's really motivating all this what she really feels is that the LGBTQ community is an evil grooming cult and again, I say if she actually cared about children and their safety and the issues of grooming, the horrible, disgusting examples of sexual assault of children, then she would use real examples, focus on real instances of this and actually fight for the well-being of children. That's not what she cares about. She cares about using these things that are the most uh, vile attacks, to use dishonestly, to hurt the other side politically that's the actual motivation behind this because she's so deeply hateful towards lgbtq people that anything is justified even baseless accusations of grooming that's what we're seeing right here and you wonder when you're on the largest cable news hosts show when you're saying that an entire community of people is an evil cult trying to groom your children you wonder why night lgbtq nightclubs are being shot up it's because of rhetoric hateful dehumanizing rhetoric like this and it is so sickening to watch the example that she provides as to why the lgbtq community is a cult is when a kid comes out as non-binary or transgender and their parents can't pull them out of that and so that's why they've been brainwashed into believing this is who they are Hey, maybe someone who identifies as transgender then goes on to continue to identify as transgender. Maybe that's because they are transgender. Maybe that's the actual answer, not that they're in an evil cult that's motivations to groom your children. It is so dangerous, so, so dangerous. Came across an interesting report from CNN revealing that Joe Biden likely has already made his decision to run for re-election in 2024 which is fascinating. He was planning on mulling over during the vacation that he's going on uh, over the holidays with his family, walking through pros and cons, making a final decision. But 
seems to be the case that's already been decided and the family's already behind it. Very interesting. Take a look at this from CNN. President Joe Biden this week returns to St. Croix, one of his and First Lady Joe Biden's beloved vacation spots, seeking a final opportunity for rest before what is expected to be a contentious 2023 and re-election run. As Biden unwinds in a familiar spot, the first couple have visited the U.S. Virgin Islands for more than a dozen years, vacationing there approximately 10 times since the mid uh, 2000s. The work on his path forward intensifies back in a frigid Washington, D.C. Advisors are already preparing the president's annual State of the Union address, typically delivered in late January or early February, viewing the speech as an opportunity to lay down the stakes and themes that Biden could adopt on the campaign trail. The first couple arrived in St. Croix on Tuesday, trying to nail that pronunciation, by the way, St. Croix, (laughs) along with family members, a gathering of the tight-knit clan who, according to several people with knowledge of recent conversations who have spoken to CNN, have now pledged support for another White House run by Biden. Senior administration officials once viewed this week's tropical escape as a crucial juncture that would play a major role in deciding his political future. And while the president does still plan to mull with his family the pros and cons of mounting a re-election bid, people who have discussed the matter with him lately say the decision is essentially made. They say the decision is essentially made. Wow. Big stuff. As a reminder, here was one of the more recent-ish times he was asked about running for re-election and his age. Turn 80 next month. Happy birthday ahead of time. (laughs) Whenever anyone raises concerns about your age, you're the oldest president in the history of the United States, you always say, watch me. Voters have been watching you. Democratic voters approve of the job you're doing. Democratic voters uh, overwhelmingly like you. Um, But one poll shows that almost two-thirds of Democratic voters want a new nominee in 2024. And the top reason they gave was your age. So what's your message to Democrats who like you, who like what you've done, but are concerned about your age and the demands of the job? Well, they're concerned about whether or not I can get anything done. Look what I've gotten done. Name me a president in recent history that's gotten as much done as I have in the first two years. Not a joke. You may not like what I got done, but the vast majority of the American people do like what I got done. And so I just, it's it's a matter of, can you do the job? And I believe I can do the job. I've been able to do the job. I've got more done. I got the inflation reduction. I got all these pieces of legislation passed. And I ran on that. I said this. Okay, we'll stop it there. But I do think if he's indeed decided and is going to be running in 2024 for president, uh, once again for re-election, then I think that's the message he's going to have to go with. Now, we've talked about how I actually feel not really excited about the idea of Biden running for re-election. And I do think it comes down to his uh, kind of communication effectiveness because of his age. But his policies that he's pushed for have been really good for the most part. And so if he can lean into, I understand there's concerns. It is pretty wild that someone who's 80 years old would be president and serve for multiple more years. And I do understand he wouldn't say this way, but my communication ability has definitely decreased. But at the end of the day, this would be his message, right? At the end of the day, what are you electing me to do? Get things done. And I got things done and I'll continue to get things done. Judge me off my policy record and my leadership record, whether it's foreign policy or otherwise, not just how I appear in certain situations, interview speeches, etc. And so that is going to be his best way to market himself. And I think 
pretending like it's not a concern of people isn't necessarily necessary, but instead saying, I think you should recognize as a voter that I will fight for you better than someone who you feel like is younger or better communication skills or whatever it might be. So let me know what you guys think in the comments. What is your reaction to it seeming like Biden's pretty set on running for reelection? Definitely interesting. Midas Touch has done it again, putting out a great video slamming Donald Trump for his criminal actions or uh, suspicious, not necessarily criminal on some of the things shown in this, immoral type behavior. And the way they do it is use a bunch of clips of Trump and his family calling the Biden family a crime family but leaving out the Biden part. And so then spliced in is a bunch of examples of the suspicious uh, behavior of the Trump family. Some of the things could be deemed to be criminal. And it sounds like they're talking about themselves because they keep saying crime family. And then it's examples of them doing very suspicious things. Now, every single example in this video isn't necessarily a crime, anything like that, but this is the exact uh, type of stories that if Biden were involved in it or Hunter Biden were involved in it, the right and Trump and the Trump family would be screaming that this is a crime family. And so very great job here from Maya's Touch. Take a look. The family is a criminal enterprise. Russian mobsters and corrupt oligarchs use Trump's properties not only to launder vast sums of money, but even as a base of operations for their criminal activity. Money tied to human trafficking and prostitution rings, that's another big one. I'll tell you what, it's an organized crime family as far as I'm concerned. According to the Times tonight, President Trump has a previously undisclosed bank account in China. That company, mysteriously, showed a huge spike in revenue right after Trump was sworn in as president. President. He goes to China, the kid is followed like a vacuum cleaner. Follows and follows and follows. Ivanka Trump, her business won trademark approvals in China the same day she met the Chinese president at her father's Mar-a-Lago resort. Ivanka Trump and Jared Kushner made at least $82 million last year while serving as unpaid White House advisors. Here's a guy didn't have a job, but now he's taking in millions and plenty of it. There are new questions tonight about the Eric Trump Foundation. Charity golf events meant to raise money for children with cancer. Hundreds of thousands of dollars went to the Trump family business. It's a crime family. He's following his father. A crowdfunding campaign to build sections of the southern border wall. This is private enterprise at its finest, doing it better, faster, cheaper. Bannon is accused of taking nearly $1 million of that campaign to fund his own lavish lifestyle. The only thing he built up is a huge bank account for his son. What a disgrace. It's a crime family. And then it ends there with a slide that says, vote out the Trump uh, crime family. So good. I love this type of video because you're using their own words against them which is doing multiple things, highlighting how their attacks on other people are not just dishonest, but they actually apply to themselves and then splicing in examples of how they apply to themselves and then revealing that hypocrisy of if when you're dishonestly attacking someone else, you purport to care about this particular issue or this principle, why is it then when uh, that when you're involved in these types of actions or when stories that actually have evidence with them come out about you or those around you, you don't care. And so that would be speaking to the right wing. Why don't you care if you talk so much about corruption with Biden that you're not providing the proper evidence for? Don't you care whenever there's examples of possible corruption with Trump and his family? And so that hypocrisy is so important in my mind to call out to make clear which people 
uh, putting out particular political messages are consistent, are actually principled, and which ones are not. That's an important thing to make clear all the time. Thank you so much for watching and listening to today's show. I'll see you tomorrow.